Good morning. Uh, my name is Jason Tyrell. I'm one of the elders here at Joy. It's been a pleasure worshiping with you and uh, uh, an honor to take us through the book of Nehemiah. This is the second to last sermon in our series through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and I, I just want to echo the, the sentiments uh, Larry, Larry shared a few minutes ago. I just want to say it also. First of all, just pr- praying for our Guatemala team as they prepare to go and uh, uh, looking forward to all that the Lord is going to do in and through you on that journey. And uh, just want to give a, a thanks to all the late, for those who labored so, so well for the Vacation Bible School this week. It was an awesome week. The team did a great job. You're, you're allowed to clap for that. It, it, was, it was a blessing to be a part of and praying that the seeds that were scattered and planted uh, take root and bear much fruit uh, in the lives of these young ones as Larry prayed. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, they cried out to the Lord and he rescued them. Through many mighty works, through miracles and plagues, the Lord pried open the hand of Pharaoh to let his people go. And even when Pharaoh changed his mind and pursued the Israelites, the Lord continued to protect them in their escape through pillars of cloud and pillars of fire. Ultimately, he triumphed over Egypt by parting the Red Sea so that Israel could pass through and then bringing the sea down upon the Egyptians. Israel rejoiced and sang together, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This was the salvation story of Israel. Slavery and miraculous rescue. Fast forward about a thousand years to our journey through Nehemiah, and here they are again. Recipients of great Mercy and grace, rescued and brought back from their exile, their punishment for their own sins. Again, the Lord had brought about a mighty deliverance, provided for them, protected them. Their city wall had been rebuilt. Right worship had been restored. And with it came, as we talked about last week, conviction of their sin. They had neglected the Lord. They had broken their covenant with Him. They had no right to expect His mercy or another chance. But they came to Him again, knowing that He is a merciful and gracious God who does not forsake His people. Do you know that this morning, brothers and sisters? He is a merciful and gracious God who does not forsake His people. In many ways, this week's passage and the beginning of next week's passage mark a religious high point for the people of Israel. Uh, Today we're going to see covenant renewal. That's the theme of today's passage, a covenant renewal before next week's dedication of the wall and service at the temple. The city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel are coming back together. Joy is being restored 
Our passage this morning is technically uh, chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through chapter 12, verse 26. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read chapter 9, verse 38. Then I'm going to read chapter 10, verses 28, or chapter 10, 28, through verse uh, 2 of chapter 11. Now, the rest of this passage, besides those verses, is a law, is lists of names. And I don't want you to think that me skipping over those names is because I think they're unimportant. They're very important. I actually have just made the decision throughout this series not to read through the long list of names because I think it could actually provide a little bit more of a distraction from what we're trying to get to do than, than to help us. Okay, but I am going to talk this morning about the significance of these lists as we go through. Okay, so we're going to start in 938. If you have your Bibles out, uh, you can turn to Nehemiah 938. If you're using the Bibles that are here in the chairs, it's on page 406. And then we're going to read 1028 through 11.2. Three things I want us to see here this morning. The covenant... Their repentance, the Israel, people of Israel's repentance, and the repopulation of Jerusalem. So covenant, repentance, repopulation. Last week was worship, confession, resolution. This week is covenant, repentance, and repopulation. Got it? Got it? The, the main thrust of this passage, this passage more than any other in the book of Nehemiah, the main thrust of this passage is the resolve of the people of Israel to honor the Lord. So that's what we're going to be focused on this morning. That's their main focus here. So uh, I'll read 938. Because of all this, because of all that they had confessed, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Moving down to 1028. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give, a, give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. 
also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. It's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit's power, you would work through this weak vessel. May my words be faithful to your word, and may you apply your word to each of our hearts this morning, that our love for you would grow, that our rejoicing in your grace and mercy would grow, that we would know you more and more, and that our lives would bear out uh, the fruit of honoring you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned last week, uh, well, let me go back. I'm going to say the three things we're going to talk about this morning one more time. The covenant, the repentance, and the repopulation. I mentioned last week that the people of Israel really had no other option but to pray for the Lord to be merciful and to renew the Mosaic covenant with the, between them and the Lord. There was nothing else they could say. If they're confessing their sin, their only hope was that God would again show them mercy and that they could renew this covenant, the one that we refer to now as the Old Covenant. While I have stressed and will continue to stress, because it comes out over and over again, the inability of Israel to keep the covenant, and the many ways that the Lord pointed His people over and over, and us over and over, to the need for a new covenant, a different covenant, one that he would keep on our behalf. What Israel is doing here, okay, all these resolves that they're making, this is a good thing. What they are doing here is good. This snapshot, while it will not last, is a snapshot of real obedience. They are laboring, endeavoring to be faithful. This sermon is entitled, A Zeal for Obedience, and it's present in this passage. For the people of God, resolving to please God with our lives is good. Right? That's a good thing. If a brother or sister in Christ were to come up to me and say, you know what, I don't even try to do what pleases God because I know I can't do it perfectly. At the very least, that brother or sister needs a strong rebuke, right? 
Paul says to the church at Thessalonica in first th- or 2 Thessalonians 1.11, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So his prayer is that the Lord would work out in his people every resolve that they have for good. We know it's all of his grace, but it is good to resolve to do good. Resolves for good honor the Lord. We on this side of the cross on this side of the empty tomb of Jesus, empowered by His Holy Spirit, understand that any good thing we do is grace. But, but all the more, all the more for us, good works, yes, they don't merit our salvation, but they must accompany our salvation. God's children should seek to glorify His name. So in our passage today, we see again We've talked over and over and over in this series about how the leaders lead in various areas. They've led in repentance. They've led in generosity. They've led in confession. Here they lead in the renewal of the covenant in 938. That's why I read it again this morning. Because we see that the leaders are the ones who are sealing the covenant, signing the covenant. The princes, the Levites, the priests... Government leaders, religious leaders, heads of households. We see this list at the beginning of chapter 10. I skipped over it, but it is important. These are heads of households who are signing on behalf of their households. The leaders are taking the lead in renewing this covenant. And then, after that, all the people do. They all ratify the covenant together. They, they follow suit. It says in uh, 10, like we, where we read in 10, 28, the rest of the people, right? All who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. All who have knowledge and understanding. So this is a national effort to renew the covenant. And what is it that they are agreeing to when they renew this covenant? They say, it says here in 28, not in 28, 29, that they are going to enter into an oath and a curse to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and statutes. A curse and an oath. What does that mean? It means that they're saying, we promise to keep our end of the covenant this time around. And we put ourselves under the curses laid out in the Mosaic law if we fail to keep it again. I don't have time to do this, but but a great place to look. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Not right now, but you could look at Deuteronomy chapter 28 Uh, today or this week, and it lays out the blessings of obedience to the Mosaic law and the curses for disobedience. And so they are saying, we are putting ourselves back under this. We We are submitting to this again. May we be blessed if we obey it, and may we be cursed 
if we disobey it. Their covenant faithfulness was going to determine whether they received the blessings of this covenant. God had not been unfaithful to his covenant even once. And he still hasn't. You know that? But their forefathers had been unfaithful repeatedly. They had suffered under the curses of the covenant after God bore with them patiently for many years. And this generation desires another chance. And the Lord grants it. Here in chapter 10, the Israelites move, move not only uh, into the, co- the covenant, but they are also going to say, uh, confess some specific areas where they are going to repent of their sin. So we're moving into their repentance, some specific areas of repentance. Because as we said a few weeks ago, repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, Right? Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. It is acting differently in light of our sorrow over previous actions. That's repentance. Paul says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Right? It's not just stop lying. It's say what's true. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to give to anyone who is in need. Right? He doesn't just say, don't steal things anymore. He says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, stop stealing and do what's good. Contribute positively to the society. Repentance is from something to something. Here Israel says that they separated themselves from the people of God to the law of God, says in this passage. And we see three specific areas of confession in this passage. First one, 1030. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Intermarriage. These people, we have, we have hit this topic a few times in this passage, in this, cha- uh, in this book, and we're going to hit it again next week. They had joined themselves in marriage to worshipers of foreign gods. That's the issue. When you join yourself to someone who worships a different god, it will be costly and painful. Your heart will be pulled away. John ends his book, 1 John, his his letter, his epistle. 1 John 5.21, right? Little children, guard yourselves. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourself from anything that's going to drag your heart's affections away from your affection for the Lord. And Israel, time and time and time again, had disregarded what God told them to do and had joined themselves to those who worshipped other gods. You know, I, th- I think about this with regards to uh, our business. Uh, many of you might know that uh, we own a driving school, the Roos, who are also members here in our family who've owned it for 17 years or so. And uh, I can't tell you how thankful I've been to run a business with people who share the same heart mindset as us. A desire to glorify God first and foremost, above profit above, you know, getting bigger and better. 
glorifying God first and foremost. We are joined in that purpose. All the more important and necessary in marriage. Paul tells the Corinthians not to be yoked together with unbelievers. And the people of God have a long history of ignoring this. A couple things I want to mention real quickly. First, if you're married and you became a believer after you got married and your spouse is not a believer, that's not us saying, like, get a divorce. No. Labor, love, care, pray to the end that your spouse would see your faithful witness and know Christ also. And don't give up in that. Labor. As long as the Lord gives you breath, there's time. This also doesn't mean that we shouldn't have relationships with people who aren't believers in Christ. We should. We ought to. But it does mean that we have to guard our hearts. History has proven out that those who worship other gods are far more likely to draw the people of God away from Him than they are to help draw them near. And I'm especially burdened for our teens and our young adults in this. There are a lot of nice people who you ought not date and marry. If you are trusting in Christ, if you are indwelt by His Spirit, if your desire is to please the Lord in your lives and your desire is to be married, let's pray together that if the Lord's will is for you to be married, He would send you someone who has the same heart and the same desires as you. And don't settle for less. Parents, trusted counselors, we do a disservice to our believing children and to other brothers and sisters in Christ when we let them move along in relationships toward marriage with nice people who do not know the Lord. It may sound... If you're here this morning, I can understand. If you're here this morning, you're saying, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. This sounds like exclusive or intolerant. Or, but the, the bottom line is that people who worship different gods, and if you don't worship the God of the Bible, if you have not put your faith in Christ, you might say, well, I don't, I don't know what I worship. You worship something. And if your objects of worship are two different things and you're getting married to each other, can you see how devastating that could become to a marriage? Two different sets of priorities, two different sets of highest goals. And often in conflict with each other. You know, the example I used of of our business, I have been known to uh, hand out a discount or two uh, as a business owner. And uh, I'm thankful that our business partners have the same heart and mind. Like, hey, yeah, bottom line isn't what drives this business. In marriage, all the more, right? Like, if you're thinking about two, greatest, two different things as your greatest priority, it's going to be devastating. And even if it's between two nice people, 
it's going to be problematic. So Israel repents of this. And secondly, they repent of their Sabbath breaking. We see in 1031, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year. I'm not going to get to talk much about that, but that's one of the, under the law, this is to provide for those who are needy. And the exaction of every debt, which was also to be forgiven after seven years. Israel repents of their Sabbath breaking. It seems like from this passage, they found a little workaround for Sabbath laws. They found a, like a little, little loophole in God's law. They weren't doing any work. What was happening? What was happening in 1031? I'll tell you what was happening. People were coming to town and selling them stuff. So they weren't, they weren't no longer going out and harvesting, but they, on the Sabbath day, if people came in and we bought things from them, hey, we didn't do any work. We are really good at finding loopholes in God's laws, aren't we? We ask ourselves questions like, how much can I do and still be honoring to God? How much can I do and still call myself a Christian? Um, and, and when we ask questions like that, I think it's important to re recognize that we are acknowledging we don't think God's laws are good. We, we don't think his rules are good. We don't believe that his rules are for our good. Right? When God says, take a Sabbath, is it because he hates you? No. Correct. Pastor Larry came back and he's on his A game. <laughs> Is it because he loves you? Yes. yes. When, when he says, don't intermarry with those who worship foreign gods, is it because he wanted to keep something good from his people? Or is it because he loved them? because he loved them. When he uh, told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree in the garden, was it because he hated them? Did he love them? Yeah. Why are we so quick to believe that the commands of God are not for our good? Sabbath is a blessing. Rest is a good thing. Rest reminds us that the Lord is almighty and we are not. And that he will provide for us even when we do no work. That's the issue. These people are still doing business on the Sabbath. They had forgotten. You know, you think about the people of Israel who had been saved in the Exodus. And God says, uh, he provides manna for him, and he says to collect it on how many of the days? Six. On the seventh, or on the sixth day, what are they supposed to do? Sixth day, double portion. Seventh day? Reminder that he is providing. He makes them collect it every day to remind them that he's going to provide for their needs every day. 
He makes them not collected on the seventh day to remind them he provides for their needs even when they're not working because he's God and they're not. Rest is not laziness. Rest is a reminder of the spiritual rest that we have in Jesus. A rest for our souls. Godly rest is an expression of faith. And we find all kinds of loopholes and yeah buts to excuse our lack of restfulness. And I am well aware. Because I know what some of you are thinking. I am well aware that I lead the charge in needing to hear this and have at times almost celebrated a lack of restfulness in my life. That's not good. Not good. I can make all kinds of excuses, and I didn't even really want to write that paragraph in my sermon, to be honest with you, because I know where the finger gets pointed first. But rest is a blessing. It's a good thing. The third area of repentance is their care for God's house. In the end of chapter 10 from verses 32 to 39, they commit to providing financially for the work of the temple. They commit to providing resources for the temple. They commit to ensuring that their worship is proper, that they are abiding by the law of Moses. That's over and over and over. You see, as it is written in the law as it is written in the law. They want to get back to right worship in the temple. And they want to commit to being the financial providers for right worship in the temple. And they conclude chapter 10 with this wonderful sentence, we will not neglect the house of our God. Multiple times in this chapter, they refer to the Lord as our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. So often they had treated him as if he was not their God. They had ignored his word. They had ignored his house. They had ignored right living and right worship over and over again. Their prophets rebuked the people for their lack of care for God's house. You see that. If you read through the the contemporary prophets to, to Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai and Zechariah rebuke for the way they care for God's house. You see the the prophet that comes after this book, Malachi, same problems. Care for God's house. Here they pledge to show the care that the house of God and the name of God are worthy of. We are still... All three of these things, I wanted to take the bulk of the sermon to talk about these three things because they still are so reflected in our lives and in our walk as believers in Christ. We are still called to live under the word of God and to care for the house of God. Where our lives do not align with God's word, we are to repent. We are not to neglect the house of God. Now when I say, what, what do we do with we will not neglect the house of our God here and now. Does that mean that we have to make sure we have uh, nice carpets and that our walls are painted the proper color and that our church is properly decorated? Is that, is that the answer to neglecting the house of our God? We are stewards of all that God has entrusted to us, for sure. 
We, we will answer for how we have cared for what he has given. But the house of God is the people of God. We talked about this earlier with the, the, the imagery early in Nehemiah of these stones that they were using to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem and that they, they have this imagery of the stones living and, and we saw in, in the book of uh, 1 Peter that we, like living stones, are being built together. We are the house of God. So the call not to neglect the house of God today is a call for every member of the body of Christ to participate in the building up of the body. The leaders must set the tone and chart the course, but all of the people of God are called to the care of His house. When the house of God is left uncared for, the people suffer. God is not honored. All kinds of problems are knocking at our door. Worship will be hindered or done away with altogether when the house of God is not taken care of. But here we have a people with hearts and minds set to caring for God's house and submitting to God's word. Which brings us to our final point of the morning. A little shorter. Repopulation. So so they're gathered. They're ready. They've made their resolution. They've repented. And now there's going to be a repopulation. Jerusalem was still a city that was sparsely populated. And... Though there's a wall around it, I'm just going to say this, Jerusalem at this point probably didn't look like a real desirable destination, okay? We know that houses still hadn't really been rebuilt. It probably kind of looked like a laid in ruins a little bit, and there weren't many people there. How would lasting change and enduring worship be ensured in the city of Jerusalem? The people cast lots, and one out of every ten was going to live in Jerusalem, it says here in the beginning of chapter 11. You still have your Bibles open? That's good. One out of every ten would live in Jerusalem. Nine others would remain in the surrounding towns. And we see in 11.2, the people of uh, all the people, let's try again, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So, Let me ask this, are the people who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem the same people as those chosen by Lot? I don't know. Uh, But what's certain is that those who went did so by faith, willingly, whether they were chosen by Lot or not, and at great cost to themselves. These people are going to, to leave what they have known to repopulate the city And tying it to our last point, care for the house of God, it's sacrificial. It comes at great cost, oftentimes. To take care of the house of God is costly. Right? We who are members of the body of Christ, our service of one another comes with cost, does it not? Is that a good thing? Yes. 
Do things that are difficult, like should I just avoid all things that are difficult because they're difficult? It would be a miserable life, right? You would have a miserable life if you avoided everything that was difficult. You would have a miserable life if you avoided everything that was sacrificial. Oftentimes, our greatest joy is tied to making sacrifice for others, for the glory of God. It would have been easier to stay where they were. But they went, and the people blessed them for it. It was for the good of the city and the good of the people. And it was glorifying to God. And the rest of today's passage goes through a lot of names, so I'm going to read each one of them to you right now. <laughs> but I do, I'm not going to do that. But I, I would like to point out a few things that are really important of note, because these lists are not insignificant. Please understand that. And please don't follow suit with me, okay? I made a decision in the sermons not to read these names, and I told you why. But when you're doing your Bible reading, read the names. It's okay if you don't know how to pronounce them. It's okay if you don't know exactly what. The, read the names. Every, every word of God's word is profitable. So a few things we learn from this list of names. First, it lists those who led in the repopulation. Namely, the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. That's significant. Because Judah, Benjamin, and Levi made up the southern kingdom of Judah. The, the last remnant of those who held fast before the exile. And we know from 1 Chronicles chapter 9 that other tribes did re help repopulate Jerusalem. But Judah led the way. Judah led the way is a theme in Scripture. Judah had a bit of a seedy reputation because of some awful things he did. But the Lord was going to use Judah and then the tribe of Judah and then the lion of the tribe of Judah to do mighty work for his namesake. Second, we see priests going back in addition to Levites, a reminder that proper worship at the temple was at the heart of their desire. Third, we see in uh, chapter 11, verses 25 to 36, that the people started to, to resettle in some of the places of their family's heritage. Now, they're not necessarily taking back the land of Israel, but they're beginning to resettle. This, they're still in the kingdom of Persia. But they're beginning to resettle where their families once did, a pointer to a future nation of Israel reforming. The author also, fourth, the author also shows us the lineage of the returnees in a way that could be checked and confirmed. That, that is important. It adds to the trustworthiness of the account. You could see, these are the people. Here's their families. And fifth, it shows that Ezra and Nehemiah, they cared about the lineage of their people. They cared about the ancestry of their people. They wanted to make sure that the Levites were Levites. They wanted to make sure that the priests were really in the priestly lineage. They wanted to ensure right worship. They didn't want to cut any corners and say, ah, this person's a good teacher. No, they're not from the, the, the tribe of Levi, but they're going to be fine. We're going to make them a Levite. This no, they didn't come from Aaron, no, but they can still be a priest. No, 
They wanted to make sure that worship was proper and in order. And they show the lineage of these people. So as we wrap up this morning, what, what have we seen? We've seen the people renewing their covenant. We've seen them taking on the oath and the curse. We've seen them repenting of specific sins. We've seen them repopulating Jerusalem. Next week, our passage is going to start with a celebration. The wall is going to be dedicated. There will be a service at the temple. This was a time for rejoicing. If today's sermon passage is a snapshot, it's a time for rejoicing in the obedience of the people of Israel. Yet, we are not ignorant of the reality that these same people would soon be in a totally different position. The problems they repented of would be right back in their faces. You'll see it next week. There's a problem that no amount of our oath-making can fix. Now, I've already told you that Christians should resolve to do good, should depend on the Spirit's empowering to do so. But what happens when people tell God they're going to do better and they'd like to be rewarded or disciplined based on their own obedience? What happens? We fall short. What happens is the Israel of uh, the, yeah, the Israel, the history of Israel, pain, discipline, remembrance, pleading out to God. He forgives them. They get another chance and then repeat, repeat, repeat. Their obedience would bring blessing, yes, but their disobedience led to curse. All the vows that we've made before God to be better and to do better. Give me one more chance. Next time I'll do it better. I know I asked you this last week too, but it's worth revisiting. Is this you? By what means do you think you are righteous? Do you stay righteous by your good works? Do your failings mean that you lose your righteousness? There is one person who has ever walked this earth and merited the full blessing of the law of Moses. The Lord Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man. He lived the life. Jesus lived the life. He could read the law of Moses and say, I did it. I did it. Which means he should inherit what? Blessings. Yet he was the only one ever whose obedience led to curse. He became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Why? To redeem us from the curse of the law. Everyone who relies on works of the law to merit God's favor, Paul says in Galatians, is under a curse. Because those who do so must do so perfectly. But the Lord Jesus bore our curse on the tree. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He lived a life that merited blessing and he became a curse for us. Where we have fallen short, he did not. He is the perfect sacrifice for the sinner who is under the curse of God. 
Our hope, our righteousness is found in Christ having been cursed for us. He initiated a new covenant in His blood. God has done what we could not and would not do to bring us to Himself and to give us the hope of eternal life. Not a temporary fix, but an eternal cleansing and an eternal blessing. A righteousness that does not go up and down based on our performance, but a righteousness that is based in what we confessed and were assured by this morning. It's His righteousness. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. All the blessings that are due to Jesus Christ are ours through faith in Him alone. Right submission and right worship begin with faith in the finished work of Jesus. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. He is the means by which proper worship, submission to the Word, and care for the house of the Lord are all truly restored. Pray with me. Thank you, Father, for hope. If we were to rely on our abilities to keep our promises for our righteousness, we would be without hope. We thank you, Lord, for sending your Son, Jesus, to become a curse for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Help us, Lord, because this passage does reflect true desires of the hearts of your people. We want to to honor you. We want to obey you. Help us, Lord. We can only do it by your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.